Praise God. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for being here tonight and worshiping. Doesn't it feel good? It just keeps feeling. Was it you, Brother Worthen, that used to say it feels gooder and gooder? I'm going to start saying that. It feels gooder and gooder. Amen. Brother Pace was here. Did, did he not like my song? Okay. Well, Sister Pace, I could give this to you. You don't even have to tell him. We'll wait. Um, the book of Genesis records the uh, creation of man. It begins with the creation of Adam and Eve. You all know that from there it tells how that men fell away from God. Sin entered into the world and Adam and Eve were forced to leave the Garden of Eden. The first dispensation of time, that of innocence, ended in judgment, which was the expulsion from the Garden. And then, as the Lord is passing out judgment, in chapter 3, we see where God says to Abraham, you're going to work by the sweat of your brow, and to the woman, you're going to be subject to the man, and you'll have chain, pain and childbearing. And he says to the serpent, you're going to crawl on your belly. But in the midst of the curse, we see this beautiful, blessed promise, this prophecy concerning the Messiah that's given to men. And it says in Genesis 3, 15, you can turn with me if you like. I'm going to be jumping to lots of scriptures fairly quickly, and they will be on the screen. Um, this will be a good Bible study, by the way, for you if you want to take some notes or you want to go back and watch the archive. Um, some of you, this is these are, this is a Bible study that you know very well. You've heard it taught many times. You are settled in this. Some of you, it may be the first time you've ever heard it, or maybe you haven't heard it very often, but it is a basic tenet of our apostolic doctrine. As apostolics, we need to know not only what we believe, but more importantly, why do we believe it? If somebody asks you, do you believe in one God? you should be able to say readily, yes, I believe in one God. Well, why do you believe there's only, why do you believe Jesus and the Father and the Holy Ghost are all the same? Why do you believe there's only one? You should be able to give them, well, we used to say apologetics, but it's, it's, it's a, a good description and explanation as to why we believe that. So we're going to look at that tonight, maybe next week. This will be a series perhaps. But God promises in Genesis 3.15, the first pro prophecy concerning the Messiah and it says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. God says, and between thy seed and her seed. Watch this. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So God promised this Messiah would save people from sin and that he would come from the seed of a woman. So the world waited. The world waited the promise of the Messiah to be fulfilled. All through the Old Testament, all through the several next dispensations, they are waiting. The Old Testament can be summarized by a time of expectation and longing. Job's words sum it up very well when Job said, Oh, that I knew where I might find him. That was the theme, the feeling of the Old Testament. They knew God was coming. They knew the Savior was coming to redeem them back to relationship but it was not there yet. And so throughout the centuries, God, through his word and by the mouths of his prophets, would give glimpses of the Messiah. 
It was like a giant jigsaw puzzle. He revealed Messiah to his people just piece by piece. It's very interesting the way as you go through the Bible, you'll see little pieces come together, a little more revealed. If you've ever worked a jigsaw puzzle, you'll know what I'm talking about when, you, when it's all scattered on the table there. My, my wife loves to work puzzles, and uh, we'll have it all scattered on the table, and, and we'll stop by once in a while, work a piece and work a piece, but it's really neat when you, you can begin to see, oh, this is, that's where that fits in, and this begins to come together. It's that way with the prophecies of the Messiah. In Micah 5, 2, that was written, by the way, around 750 years before Christ, Micah foretold where the Messiah was to be born. Micah said in 5.2, but thou Bethlehem, Ephratah, thou, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel. So at, at this time, Bethlehem was a very small, very insignificant town, but Micah reveals to us the where. And then in Jeremiah chapter 23, that was written about 599 years before Christ. The prophet Jeremiah proclaims, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely, and this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteous. So here we learn that the Messiah would be born of the tribe of Judah. So we learn in Genesis, he's going to be born on the earth. And then we begin to learn in Micah, we learn that uh, he's going to come to Bethlehem. And now in Jeremiah, we learn that he's, which tribe he will come through. And then in Isaiah 7, 14, that's written around 742 be years before Christ. Jeremiah says, therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So now we know little piece by piece the jigsaw puzzle comes together for us throughout the Old Testament now we know that he would be born of a virgin as a matter of fact there are 109 specific prophecies of the coming Messiah many different prophets gave these prophecies between the years 1000 BC and 500 BC these prophecies have been fulfilled get this they've all been fulfilled by the way in one person showing and proving the Bible to be accurate and to be the Word of God, and that God himself became flesh. Uh, let's look at another important prophecy concerning the Messiah. It's found in Isaiah 9, 6. Isaiah says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name, watch this, his name, everybody say name. <clears throat> his name shall be called Wonderful. His name shall be called Counselor. His name shall be called the Mighty God. If you understand English and punctuation, you can read it this way. His name shall be called the Everlasting Father. His name shall be called the Prince of Peace. <laughs> so, so every Christian group, denomination, organization, all of them agree that this scripture is about Jesus. There's no argument there. They all proclaim it to be a prophecy about the promised Messiah. And so it's important for us to note just what this prophecy says about the Messiah, who he is, who he is. It says he's wonderful. 
if you break that word down, it means a miracle, a marvelous thing. He's wonderful. He's our counselor, it says. Powerful, champion. Uh, he, or to advise, rather, to resolve, to counsel. And then he's the mighty, that means powerful, the champion. Mighty God, the almighty God is he. He's the everlasting. It means he's eternal, eternity. He's the everlasting father. Aren't you glad he's your father? The, the prince of peace. Prince. He's the head person, the steward of your shalom, your prosperity, your peace. That's who Jesus is. This is an amazing prophecy because it tells us that the Messiah, catch this, is almighty God and the Messiah is also the Father. These prophecies are consistent with the foundational scriptures from Deuteronomy chapter 6, known as the Shema. This very foundational scripture in the Old Testament, known as the Shema, it was very important to the Jews. They were to recite it often. They were to teach it to their children diligently. Orthodox Jews pronounce each word carefully and cover their eyes with their right hand. Many of them recite this passage twice a day, once in the morning and then once in the evening. The Shema is a declaration of faith in one God. Everybody say one God. The first line of the Shema is found in Deuteronomy 6.4. And it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Mm. This passage tells us that our Lord is one Lord. Not only does it say that he is one Lord, but it also says the Lord is one and all throughout the Old Testament, we can read, thank God, we can read about this truth over and over again. God has declared to his people that there is only one God. No, there is no other. He is declared to be the one and only Lord and Savior and beside him. There is no other. There, there are many verses that declare the power and authority of God. From the scriptures we can see there can only be one God. The Old, the Old Testament shows God as the Almighty, Savior, Creator of all things, all-powerful, the I Am, and the first and the last. God in Genesis 17, 1, God is the Almighty One. He says to Abraham, when Abram was 99 years old, I am the almighty God. In Isaiah 43, 11, God says, I even, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. God is the Savior. In Isaiah 44, 24, the Lord created all things by himself. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. In 1 Chronicles 29, 12, we see that God has all power. It, it, it declares both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all, and in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. God has all power. Amen. Now let me say this to you. If somebody has all power, then there's not anybody else that has any power. 
Only one can be all power. Only one can have all power. Somebody said amen. In Exodus 3.14, we learn that God is the I am. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am <laughs> hath sent me unto you. God is the I am. In Isaiah 44, 6, God is the first and the last. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. And beside me there is no God. Have you had enough yet? I hope not because I got more. In the Old Testament, the Scriptures proclaim there is only one God. There is only one Savior. It also says that God alone created all things. And God alone has all power. This fact is clearly and thoroughly set forth in the Old Testament. The thing that separated God's people from the rest of the world was that God's people believed in only one God. If you were to go back to the Old Testament church, what I'm teaching here tonight would be a foreign thing. For somebody to have to stand up and teach and declare only one God, it was just a given to them. This foundational truth of who God is and that God is one is the very basis of the Scriptures. God himself has proclaimed that he is one. There's no other who came before him or shall come after him. He is the God who changes not and his word, oh hallelujah, is established forever there is no place in the scriptures that contradicts this established truth from the foundation of the world. He is the only one and only God. One of the greatest confirmations of the Bible is the word of God and that God is one. It's found in the prophecies. When a person reads the prophecies, it's easy to see that God himself became flesh and walked among us. God is the first and the last, and beside him there is no other Savior. You ever wonder why so much of the Old Testament is just packed full of prophecy after prophecy? The Old Testament is a, is a book full of types, figures, shadows, examples of of things that were to come. And throughout those prophecies and throughout those types and figures and shadows, we see Christ prophesied. And when Jesus comes, he fulfilled every single Old Testament prophecy. That thick book of the Old Testament was all fulfilled. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy anything. I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. All of those things that the law pointed toward, I'm here to fulfill. From the prophecies of the Old Testament and the scriptures of the New Testament, we can plainly see that God himself became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Old Testament is replete with scriptures that proclaim to us one, 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 one. Then we get to the New Testament. Now we have this Messiah who shows up and he, is he, is he a God? Is he one of three or is he God? We have to understand who Jesus is. It's important. And that's why Jesus asked his disciples before he could turn the keys over to any of them. He asked them, who do men say I am? And they said, well, some say this. They're confused. And some say you're Elijah. And they're confused. Some say you're John. They're confused. Jesus said, okay, I understand they are confused. But I, before I turn a key over to anybody, Peter, I need to know that you know who do you say that I am. And that's when Peter said, oh, I know you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And what he was saying in that moment, all of those Old Testament prophecies are realized in you. The one who stands before me, you are 
him. You are the one which we have waited for for thousands of years. And Jesus said, you're blessed, Simon Barjona, because not only flesh and blood didn't show this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed who I in the flesh am. And now I can trust you with the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Watch this in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, he goes on to say, and the Word was made flesh. Word, capital W, it's logos, it's the thought, the mind of God. And in the 14th verse, we learn now that what was in the mind of God, formulated in his thoughts, always there, now was made flesh. Manifest is a good word. Became flesh. Dwelt, oh man, among us. God in the flesh dwelling among us. And, and John says we beheld this glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. According to these scriptures, God and the Word are the same. It says the Word was God, not a God. If you, have a, if you have a version of the Bible that says was a God, you need to toss that thing. The Bible says was God. Later in the same passage, it says, and the word was made flesh. This is what the apostle John told us about who Jesus Christ is. He is, catch this, he is God in the flesh. God in the flesh. No wonder Paul would write in the book of 1 Timothy 3.16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Hallelujah. I know here thousands of years later, we've, we feel like we've got a handle on it. We've read it. We've studied it. We understand it. We believe it. But if you can imagine in Paul's day to understand that Jesus Christ was God manifest in the flesh, great is the mystery of it all. That God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. In other words, God himself took on flesh and came to earth. He was manifest in the flesh. Listen, by the way, this is what we're coming into the Christmas season very soon. That's what this season's all about. It's not about Santa Claus. It's not about reindeer. It's not about snowmen. It's not about any of those things. It's not, about, it's not even about presents and trees and gifts and all those things. Above everything is to remember that God, oh God, became manifest in the flesh, came and lived among us, dwelt among us, died for our sins. He was manifested in the flesh. He was preached unto the Gentiles. He was received up into glory. His name is Jesus the Christ, God in the flesh. In John 14, 8, <clears throat> Jesus is having a discussion with his disciples. And Philip asked the Lord to show him the Father. In verse 9 of that chapter, Jesus would answer that request this way. He says, have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? By the way, you couldn't see the Father until he became flesh. 
In John 10, 30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Not, not agree in one, work as one, unified as one. We are one. The Greek word one here is, is haste. This word means one numerically. Not in agreement, but numerically. Jesus is again proclaiming God, that, that he is God in the flesh. There are not, now these, these are not the only scriptures where Jesus proclaims this. There are more scriptures to show us who he is. In John 8, 31, uh, you can read 31 through 59, but Jesus has a very interesting conversation with the Jews. And during this conversation, I sang about it a while ago, the Jews were talking to Jesus. And they said, just who are you? You claim to be the Christ. That you're greater than Abraham too. Isn't that a great song? Wow. The Jews were upset because they said that Jesus, first of all, during the conversation, Jesus tells the Jews that he knew Abraham. Jesus is 30-some years old, and he says, I, know, I knew Abraham, who the Jews proclaimed as their father. The Jews were upset because they said, that, well, Jesus, you're not even 50 years old, and he was claiming to know Abraham. And then Jesus went on to say in verse 58, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was. <laughs> if that blows your mind, this is going to really mess with you. Before Abraham was. Not I was. I am. Made them mad. For anyone to utter these words other than the Messiah is blasphemous. And they considered Jesus to be a blasphemer because they did not believe what he was saying to be true. The Jews knew exactly what Jesus was saying to them. Jesus said, I am the same thing the Lord said to Moses. When Moses stood before the burning bush, Jesus was proclaiming himself to be Jehovah. And that is why in verse 59, the Bible records that the Jews took up stones to stone him. This was the penalty for blaspheming under the law. The Lord God of the Old Testament is the Christ of the New Testament. Certainly, the Scriptures do not teach the concept of three gods nowhere, nor does it teach three separate and distinct persons in a triune Godhead nowhere, nor are the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost each one-third of a whole God nowhere. Very simply put, the Word of God explicitly teaches that there are three manifestations of one God who is, catch this, Father in creation. He's the Son in redemption. Everything that he did on the cross, on Calvary, to redeem us to himself, he did not, there was no way to do that as the Father. He had to do that as the Son because it required a sacrifice, of required flesh. So Son in redemption. And then the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. Right, right, yeah. These are the three manifestations. Would you repeat these with me? Say, Father in creation. Father in Son in redemption. Son in the Holy Spirit that dwells in me. Those are the manifestations, three manifestations of one God. The scripture declares over 300 times that there is but one God. Yet some preachers will preach that there are three without one single verse in the Bible that declares three gods, three persons, triune Godhead, etc. It's just not there. Uh, a very interesting scripture is found in Matthew 1.8. This verse tells us about the birth of Jesus. 
He tells us who the Father is. Now, if there were three persons in the Godhead, it would be, be a simple conclusion that, that the Father would be the Father of Jesus. That seems logical if you believe in three persons in one God. However, according to the Scriptures, this is not true. So look at Matthew 118. We'll bring it up. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Remember, we saw through the Old Testament, he's going to come to the earth. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to come through a virgin. He's going to come through the tribe of Judah. Now he shows up. How's he going to, how in the world? No one's ever been born of a virgin. By the way, virgin doesn't mean a young lady. It means just exactly what it means today. She's never known a man. And she and her espouse husband, the Bible says they've not, they not been joined together. She was found with the child of the Holy Ghost. This scripture plainly shows us that the father is not the father of Jesus. Not the father, quote unquote father, was not the father of Jesus, the Holy Ghost is the father of Jesus. So that gets very confusing. If you believe there are three separate beings, father, son, Holy Ghost, then that's a problem. But not if you understand that there's one God who operates in different ways. The Holy Ghost is the father of Jesus. So that must mean that the father and the Holy Ghost is the same person. We have no problem understanding that when you understand there's one God operates in different ways. So the Holy Ghost overshadowed Mary. That's what the Bible says. The Holy Ghost overshadowed Mary, did the work that needed to be done for her to conceive and bear a son. Miraculously in her body did a miracle. That's the way the Spirit works today. The Spirit of God, when we're praying for healing, when we're praying for miracles, we're not praying that the, the Father comes down in some visible form or, the, or, or Jesus comes down in fleshly form. What we're really praying is that the Holy Ghost would move. Yeah. It moves, it moves, it moves. It does a work. It moves in our hearts. It stirs us. It, it, that's the Holy Spirit. God moving in the Holy Spirit. So when it was time for Mary to conceive, the Holy Ghost did a miracle in her body. Isn't that awesome? When the Bible is read without any preconceived notions, it's easy to see that the Bible from the Old Testament all through the New Testament proclaims only one God. It's not three in one. It is not three persons. It is one and only one God. God's, uh, God's oneness, or it's also referred to as monotheism. Monotheism means oneness of God. It's, it's the central doctrine of the Old Testament and of God's people. The Jews were unique because, as I said earlier, while all the other cultures around them believed in multiple gods, they were monotheistic. They believed in the truth of one God. And the Bible affirms that, of course, that there's no plurality, but the self-existent one is who God is. In the New Testament, God was incarnate. These are important words, incarnate in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is not another separate being in the Godhead. Jesus is Jehovah. He is the only Lord and Savior in the flesh. And remember this scripture? We read it earlier. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Jesus was God in the flesh. So we need to talk here 
about the humanity of Christ. If you do not understand the dual nature of Jesus, you will struggle with the oneness here. You'll struggle when you read about Jesus in the scriptures if you don't understand the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ. See, Jesus was God in the flesh. He did not share the Godhead. Never, never did he use the terms Trinity. That's not in the Bible. Persons, not in the Bible. When referring to himself, he proclaimed to be God more than once in the New Testament. Jesus was a man, but was not just a man. I used to sing an old song back in, the, that was probably in the 90s too. We should have pulled that one out. He was more than just a man. You guys remember that song? That, that you're welcome. That you'll be thinking of that in your sleep tonight. Gave his life for redemption plan. Right? There you go. Take that. <laughs> we texted me. Thank you, Brother Hawkins. That's stuck in your head. It was a neat song. The tune kind of could get to you. He was more than just a man. Jesus was also God. So a few scriptures that declare the humanity of Christ. Let's look at them. Uh, while the Old Testament and New Testament both proclaim Jesus as God, Jesus is also known to be a man. Watch this in 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God. 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The man, Christ Jesus. Um, Romans 1.3, Paul says, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Humanity of Christ. Hebrews 2, listen to these, 14 and verse 16. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death. Now catch this, this is very integral to understanding the incarnation of Christ. That through death, he might destroy them. I want to start over. Look at the beginning of this. For as much then as the children are partakers of the flesh and blood, he also, who? Jesus. Himself likewise took part of the same. He had to, he had to come, if he was to redeem us, to take part in what we took part in. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil for verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. We're talking here now about the humanity of Christ. God himself became flesh and took on the form of man. Listen to me. When God created the heavens and the earth, he was not up there, God the Father, and then here's Jesus just floating around up there waiting someday to get a body, come to earth. And when God decided he was going to redeem man and somebody had to die, he sends his son. That is not, that is not what happened. God himself became flesh and took on the form of man. He was a perfect man. He conducted himself faultlessly, According to God's own requirements, he was sinless, unlike the first Adam, the second Adam, which is Christ. Jesus was a perfect man. Therefore, as man, he did not claim glory for himself. He did not use his power as God to deliver himself from the agony of Calvary. He took on himself the form of a servant. He could have, the Bible lets us know, he could have called 10,000 angels. He was still God. He could have spoke the word and everybody who was nailing him to that cross would fell over dead. He was still God, but he subjected himself for us, by the way. 
It says in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. This is it. This is where he, 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 he subjected himself, humbled himself. He didn't want a reputation. He took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. I'm going to tell you, if you really get a hold of this, it will astound you to think about the fact that Jesus, Brother Worthen, was a man like you and me in his humanity, right. in his flesh. If he stubbed his toe, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't say, oh, hallelujah, bless God. thank God I stubbed it. He, went, he didn't say, oh, I'm the fault. He stubbed his toe. He said, ow! Think about that for a moment. God saying, ouch! He didn't do that in his deity. He did that in his humanity. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So just as the Old Testament proclaimed that there to be only one Lord and Savior, it also proclaims that God himself would become flesh. There, there's a lot of prophecies about this written hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. And one of them is in Isaiah 9, 6. We read it earlier. Well, we read part of it. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So all Christians know that this prophecy refers to the coming Messiah. We also know that Jesus is that Messiah. And you'll notice that one of the titles given to the Messiah or Jesus is Everlasting Father. In other words, the Messiah is God himself in flesh and coming to earth as our Savior, Jesus Christ. He was 100% God. Catch this now. He was 100% God, yet he was 100% man. Fully God and fully man. Completely God and completely man at the same time. His name is Jesus Christ. From the book of Genesis forward, the Messiah was promised to come and save his people. We read it in Genesis 3.15, the promise of the Messiah. In Isaiah 7.14, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. The virgin's going to come. Our virgin's going to give birth. Bear. His name shall be called Emmanuel. Between Genesis 3.15 and Isaiah 7.14, we can understand that the Messiah would take on the form of humanity. He would be born of a woman, and so no one could ever doubt who Messiah would be. In 7.14 of Isaiah, it tells us, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. So Messiah would be born of a virgin. That had never happened before the birth of Jesus, nor has it ever happened since. It is a miraculous sign that only our God can give. Can you say amen? amen. Matthew 1.18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with, the whole, uh, with child of the Holy Ghost. So this scripture alone is enough to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. It is enough to prove that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. He is the man, Christ Jesus. Uh, Jesus can understand, now catch this, Jesus can understand our humanity because he was made of flesh and born of a woman. Paul says in Hebrews 2.18, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. 
Don't ever think that, well, the Lord just doesn't understand. He went through it all. Just as we are tempted. Mm -hmm. He goes on, Paul says to us in Hebrews 4, 15, he points out, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He, he was in all points tempted, all points tempted like we are yet without sin. Now, these scriptures tell us that Jesus was tempted, and as a man, he could choose sin. It wasn't that he couldn't. He could choose. As a man, he could choose. But he did not. He resisted all temptation and became, thank God, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Man, that's amazing. The Bible gives many proofs of the humanity of Christ. In Matthew 4, 2, it says that he, when he fasted 40 days, 40 nights, he was hungered. So as a man, Jesus had to eat just like you and I have to eat. When he had not eaten after 40 days fast, he's hungry. His flesh required him to take nourishment. In John 4, 6, the Bible says uh, Jacob's well was there. And Jesus being wearied. Jesus, get this, God got wearied. God was weary. In his humanity, he was. He felt weary just like you get weary with his journey. He sat on the well. It was about the sixth hour. Here comes a woman of Samaria. Jesus says, give me to drink. See, in this passage, we see two things about Jesus that's common to man. First, he got wearied with his journey, and Jesus was tired from this trip, so he sat down on the well. And secondly, while he was there, he met a woman from Samaria, and Jesus was thirsty and asked her for a drink. Both of these are common to man. So as a human, he became both tired and thirsty. It's amazing to me. Great is the mystery of godliness. That as a man, Jesus would say, give me to drink. But as God, he could take water and turn it into wine. As a man, he needed a drink. But as God, he could walk on the water. I said it earlier, if you do not catch this key, Understanding that Jesus Christ had a dual nature. He's human and he's God. He's, he's flesh and he's deity. Then you will struggle with these scriptures. When Jesus says things like, um, when he prays. If he is not completely man and completely God, then you have a God praying to a God and that just don't compute. But if you understand that he was flesh and what cried out in that garden of Gethsemane and prayed until his sweat became as it were great drops of blood. I talked about it last Sunday or the Sunday before and cried out for his friends to stand with him. That was his humanity. Come on, somebody. So if you got to have this key, you've got to understand who's operating here. Is it Jesus in his humanity or is it Jesus in his deity? When Jesus says, I'm hungry, is that humanity or deity? When Jesus divides and multiplies the loaves and fishes, humanity or deity? So the same one who needed food could multiply food. Because he's completely man and completely God. Amen? Great is the mystery of godliness. As a man, he was born. He was subject to temptation. He was limited to one location. But God's omnipresent. But in the flesh, he had to walk to get where he was going. He was not at Lazarus' side when he died because he was over there. Where was he? In Bethany or somewhere? He was, he was a few days away. But God's omnipresent. Was he there or was he not? 
Well, as the God Almighty, he was there because he's omnipresent. But in his flesh, the God-man, he was not there. Wow. He required food, sleep, rest, drink, just like any other man. And as a man, Jesus was subject to death. Amen. We'll finish this next week. Let's stand together. Well, it's only 823. I thought it was 830. Sit back there. No, I'm just kidding. I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you go. When I get into teaching this stuff, I really could just go all night long. I love this doctrinal stuff. But there's a lot. I'm laying a lot of stuff on you. So when you go back to, maybe you can go back and watch it later, take some notes. Um, this is good stuff. These are, when we talk about being apostolic, listen to me. When we say we're apostolic, we're not talking about we shout, we jump, we speak in tongues. Apostolic is about our doctrine. Pentecostal, we talk about our experience. We, we talk about like it was on the day of Pentecost. Yeah, we, we speak in tongues. Yeah, that's our experience. We might act like we're drunk sometimes. That's our experience. We worship God like that. That's our experience. When we talk about apostolic, we believe in one God. We believe in Jesus. You, when you're baptized, you're baptized in the name. When we get done with this Bible study, you're going you're to have a clear understanding that Jesus was not saying one thing and Peter another when Jesus said, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And then Peter says, you must be baptized in the name of Jesus. They were not contradictory. We understand the name of the Father is Jesus. The name of the Son is Jesus. The name of the Holy Ghost is Jesus. These are apostolic doctrines. And I'm very much a preacher and pastor who likes to talk about issues and real issues and things you're going through and helping you get through and all these things. But once in a while, we just need to take a night and get into doctrine because doctrine is what we are. It's who we are. It's what roots us and grounds us. If you're praying for a miracle and you're not sure who Jesus is, you got a problem, see? I've literally, one of the questions I'm often asked by people in Bible studies is new people are one thing, they'll say this. One thing I'm confused about is when I pray, who to talk to? When I pray, do I talk to the Father? Do I talk to the Holy Ghost? So we have to get to the point where we, okay, let's, let's find out who Jesus is. If you understand who Jesus is, let me tell you who Jesus is. When you say Jesus, you've said it all. Amen. So we don't have to sit around and try to figure out, well, who do I address here? Who do I need to call for this? When we say Jesus, we're talking to the Father. When we say Jesus, we're talking to the Son. When we say Jesus, we're talking to the Holy Ghost. Amen? Amen. Amen. Go home and digest this a little bit. Pray. Let's pray. Would you raise your hands up to heaven right now? I want to pray over this congregation. Father, I thank you for this great congregation that is here tonight. I thank you, Lord, for your word, your doctrine, God, things that we need to be rooted in and grounded in. I pray that it gets down into our minds and down into our hearts. God, that we will stand as Peter on a solid rock, Lord. As Jesus said to Simon Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. The revelation of who you are. Help us, God, young and old alike, to be rooted and grounded and stand on the solid rock of the revelation of who you are. We ask it in the name of Jesus, Lord. We give you the praise and the glory. Bless these people and use them for your kingdom. In Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. Hey, invite some people to come with you to revival. Now we're going we're gonna to have more seats for revival. We're going to be back to our old seating. Did you like not being told where to go tonight? Or not where to sit tonight, <laughs> I should say. If Gary's been telling you that, you tell me. I'll get on him. But if, Yeah, that's nice. Amen. We're, we're just going to get back and, uh, and just have revival. What do you say? God bless you all. Dismissed in Jesus' name.